Oh, sorry, I got so excited singing that song, Ethan, that I, uh, I forgot to come forward, you know? That was really good. Thanks, church. I appreciate that. Well, it's good to see everybody. Welcome. We're glad that you're with us uh, worshiping today. I've been out of pocket for the last two weeks on Sunday mornings, been here on Wednesday nights, but uh, it's good to see everybody again. And uh, welcome to everybody that's with us online. We're glad you're able to be joining us this way and looking forward to when you're able to come with us in person. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians, the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the last two verses, and we're going to be in that ver- those verses and then the first 16 verses of chapter 11. That's where we're going to be. If you have the study sheets that were out there, uh, you can use those. I kind of put some scriptures down there to help us. We're going to jump around just a smidge uh, uh, to kind of go through this passage a little bit. Uh, our family lived in the late 80s and the early 90s in England for three and a half years. I was over there getting a degree, and uh, it was a great experience, but it was a foreign experience. We've had some other folks in our congregation that have lived overseas. Uh, the Bryants have done that. I know the Hopwoods have done that, and they've and I, I there are some others, but I'm I'm forgetting right now who've had that experience. It's one thing to visit overseas. It's another thing to live there for an extended period of time. What we experienced was we lived in England, and when we first got there, we were definitely in the tourist mode. You know, everything was new. The food tasted different. The customs were different. People used, they were speaking English, but they were using different vocabulary for the same stuff. And we were, we thought that was hilarious. And, you know, we talked about it afterwards. But after about a year, it was a really interesting phenomenon. In, in England, where we were, uh, we lived in Oxford, uh, there would just be this massive influx of, of foreigners coming in in July and August. And downtown Oxford would just be crowded with Americans and Germans and Japanese just crowding the shops and crowding all the sites, you know, and the colleges and stuff. And it was real funny. It was, it was just like a shift. We suddenly realized, oh, man, the tourists are here. It was so fun. And, and you know, and they're loud. And, they're, and they just think they own the place. It was so funny. I mean, we had, we had shifted over from being tourists to being whatever it was we were at that point. It was, it was an interesting transition. You know, when we study the Word of God, there are parts of it where I think the Holy Spirit just kind of blares the truth into our minds. I feel that way a lot of times when I read the Sermon on the Mount. There are times when I read the Sermon on the Mount when I want to tell the Holy Spirit, please stop making it so clear to me what I'm not doing right, you know. But, but there are other parts of Scripture where, let's be honest, uh, I feel like an absolute tourist. You know, I read it and I go, okay, I know the words here. But I'm not sure I'm getting at all what, what's being said. And, and uh, let's be clear, when I approach 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 16, I really do feel like a tourist. 
There are good tourists and there are bad tourists. I think you guys probably know what I'm talking about. Good tourists are people who at least try a little bit to learn the culture and they make some effort to try and figure out what the rules are and what the language is like and what the differences are. The bad tourists are the people who just go in, you know, Americans are famous for this, but they're not the only ones who do this. Uh, the bad tourists are the ones who just go in and say, well, these folks are really just uh, Americans, they're just bad at being Americans. If I shout louder, they'll understand me. You know, if I, if I insist loudly enough, they'll switch over and, and, and behave more like Americans, you know. And, and sometimes I think we read passages like this, which are hard to interpret, I think. We read passages like this uh, as bad tourists. We say this has to be interpreted in terms of our concerns and our understanding in 21st century America. That's the only way to understand it. And, and that's just being a bad tourist. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church in the first century. And it was a very important message to them and it carries an important message to us, but to get that message, we're going to have to go through the process, kind of the hard work of trying to figure out, well, what did it mean to them? So that we can hear the message that the Holy Spirit has for us. And my opinion is this, some passages are easier, some passages are harder. All the passages of Scripture, we need to be humble and submissive to God. I don't know about you, but but I'm probably not as good as I should be about praying to God before I open Scripture and saying, God, I know I'm, I'm touching something sacred with this. I know that I'm, I'm dealing with something holy. I know I'm dealing with something powerful. And I need your help understanding what it is you want me to understand out of this. And that's certainly true with the more gnarly passages, which I think this is one of them. So before I get to this passage... I want to go back two chapters. Go back with me, just keep your place here, and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a principle that Paul lays down. He's dealing with another issue for the Corinthian church, the issue of how are we going to deal with this problem of food that's been sacrificed to idols, and some people have real pangs of conscience about that, and other people know that that's no big deal, and and what are we going to do about that? And in his attempt to untangle all of that, Paul lays down what I think is a beautiful missionary principle, but it's a beautiful general Christian principle too. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 22. He writes these words. <clears throat> Though I am free, and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak so I can win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. 
Paul lays that down as at least a key missionary principle. And I think it's a key, it's an important way to understand what Paul's doing, what he's being led to do as an apostle. And it's also an important principle for us. Paul adapts to the cultures he's trying to reach in an effort to more effectively preach the gospel. That's just a, that's a reasonable thing to do. Now, how do you adapt to the culture you're in? You know, how do you, how do you shape the gospel? Well, that's not straightforward. I'm not going to say it's just simple and that there's some sort of formula you can plug in, you know, variable A and variable B and variable C and you get answer, you know, X, Y, or Z. I think that also requires humility and prayer and, and recognizing we may get it wrong. But I think the general idea is I don't ever want to put my culture in a, in a position to block somebody hearing the gospel. When we lived in England, we had an example like this that came up. We had, we had a, a nice, thriving congregation of British people meeting with us in Oxford, but we had an influx of folks uh, coming in from the American Air Force bases that are around there. And they were all from, you know, kind of the South. They were from Kentucky and Tennessee and Texas. And after they were met, met with us for about a half a year, there came to be some rumblings that we weren't singing some of the hymns that they were used to. They were used to some of the songs that Ethan leads for us, some of the Stamps-Baxter-style songs that I really like because they have good bass parts, and I like that. But, but those were absolutely foreign. That's a foreign style of singing. That's a foreign sound of singing to the British church members. And we just had to have serious conversations and say, we appreciate what you want. We understand that you like that. But we're just not going to do it here. As, you know, and, and we hope you understand our outreach is to the British people. We're trying to reach British people. And that, would, that style of hymns would, would be a kind of a block to what we're trying to accomplish here. That's a simple example. But that example has been repeated over and over and over again in the history of Christianity. Where people have to make smart judgments to say, how do I keep my culture and my preferences from being a hindrance to the spread of the gospel? How do I help the gospel speak in the heart language and reach the hearts of the people who desperately need this story, right? So that's what Paul's on about, and I think it's a key principle for us as well. I think that principle helps us when we come to this, what is admittedly a difficult passage. Paul says at the very end of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he says, do not cause anyone to stumble. Verse 32 of chapter 10. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. I think Paul's deliberately doing a callback to what he said in Chapter 9, it sounds like. He's saying, look, when you behave these ways, think about how you are making the gospel as appealing as possible. And then he addresses the issue that he needs to talk about next. 
chapter 11, verse 1. For my example, as I follow the example of Christ, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. For I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. For, but if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off of, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, and everything comes from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? That if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. And nor do the churches of God. Uh, Paul is making an extended argument. The, the main point he's making is pretty clear. He says, in the churches, I want the women who are praying and prophesying, I want you to keep your heads covered. That part is clear. And men, you're praying with your heads uncovered. Why does he make that argument? He has a lot of supporting points that he makes. Some of them are derived from scripture. Some of them are derived from other sources. Nature shows us this and so forth. But the main point is, I want women to pray with their heads uncovered. Why does he, why does he want that? Well, I think most people have reached the conclusion, and I think the data supports this, that just like he says in chapter 10, I don't want you to be a stumbling block to Jews or Greeks or, uh, or the church of God. Jews, Greeks, and Romans viewed it as inappropriate for women to be out in public, especially married women, but actually all women, to be out in public, especially in a worship setting, with their heads uncovered. And my take on this is that Paul is saying that there probably were some women in the church in Corinth who were engaging in worship activities with their heads uncovered, Paul is saying, I don't want you to give offense in a way that's going to hinder the main message of the church in this culture. That's what I think is going on here. I, I don't want you to put uh, the, the message of the gospel at risk by doing these things with your heads uncovered. Paul argues for head coverings for women during worship, at least partly because the opposite behavior would have been culturally offensive. We actually know, we have, we have uh, literary evidence for a long, long time, and now we have an increasing amount of engravings and even some sculptures which show uh, women, in, especially in worship settings, 
would approach worship settings with their heads covered. Ironically, we have a lot of evidence that shows men would sometimes cover their heads too in worship settings, even in the first century. It's more common in earlier centuries, but even in first century, men would cover their heads, sometimes. Uh, one historian said this was very standard 400 years before this time in Roman and Greek culture. The toga, once it started to come in, this practice became less common. I don't remember when the toga came in. You guys all have phones, but please, not during my sermon. You can Google it later. And apparently, it had become less common for men to cover their heads during worship uh, once the toga comes in, in Greek society. Jewish society, this is really strange. The Jews did both in the first century. But by the third century, it had become standard for Jewish people, men, to cover their head during worship. So at this point in time, this is really cultural, folks. At this point in time, Paul says, men, don't cover your head. Women, cover your head. And I think if he had written this four centuries later, his guidance would have been, everybody cover your head. I think we got to be good tourists, not bad tourists, when we read scriptures like this and realize he was talking, trying to not get the gospel to be hindered in that first century context. Now, I don't know everything that's going on. I'm never going to know everything that's going on. Uh, we are 2,000 years removed. I think I have to approach this text with a lot of humility and try to understand what it's saying. I think the principle of trying to keep my cultural preferences and my social preferences out of the way of the gospel so that the gospel can have maximum effect and so the most people can be saved, I think that is a principle I need to pursue prayerfully and humbly as best I can. And, and, and I think, by and large, that's what churches try to do. That doesn't mean we're not going to disagree about how this passage should be interpreted. We're going to. And that's also part of the process of letting the Holy Spirit help us understand it. And I think that's good. I will say one other thing that I think comes out of this. When Jeremy led us through 1 Corinthians a few months ago, he made this point, And I think it's a really important point to derive from this passage. One of the things that might have been going on in Corinth with women praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered is some kind of an attempt to erase the difference between men and women. Whatever was going on, Paul definitely thinks that men and women are created by God for a good purpose. It's, it's, it's kind of an important theological point that he's making. And I think we probably should derive that from uh, this passage and obviously from other passages. If you've got your Bibles, put a bookmark there in, in 1 Corinthians 11 and go back to Genesis chapter 1 with me. This is a passage Paul knew very, very well when he was writing 1 Corinthians 11.
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humans, the, the Adams, the Adama, created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. Genesis 1 is one of the passages that Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says males are made in the image of God. He, he doesn't deny that females are. He's making a different point about women. But he knows good and well what this passage claims. The image of God is incomplete without males and females. That's what Genesis 1 says. If you have an all-male world, God's purposes for humans cannot be fulfilled. If you have an all-female world, God's purposes for humans cannot be fulfilled. God's image requires males and females. Now, God made humans male and female for good purposes. That much is very, very clear. I want to add this point, and if you have your study sheets, this is in there. Some of the purposes of God we know, we understand. Some of the purposes of God we probably don't yet know. Why are there males and females in God's plan? Why did he come up with genders? What's the point of that? Some things are pretty obvious. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Kind of hard to do that with all men. Kind of hard to do that with all women. We get that. There are apparently, I think, there are other reasons why the genders are crucial. Part of God's plan, and I don't pretend that I fully comprehend what God's up to there. But one thing I think that tells us is, whatever you are, man or woman, God has a plan for what he made you to be. God has something good that you can do. There are all kinds of men. There are all kinds of women. God has something good that you can do in what he created you to be. He has a plan for that. I'll say this because I know this passage brings up a lot of feelings in people. We live in a world in which I think it's a good thing. Many Christians are involved in movements to try to make the world a better place for women, to, to right wrongs and to end injustices against women. I think that is a good work, and I think Christians should be ready for every good work. I think that's good. Unfortunately, one of the best ideas, one of the, one of the ways that we have tried to do that in our society 
was to pretend like gender didn't really exist. It's kind of made up, not a real thing. That solved a few problems, but it's created a lot of problems. And I believe what the Bible says is gender's real and it has some good purposes, not all of which we fully understand yet. And I think we've created serious problems for ourselves, serious problems for women, <laughs> because we try to pretend that gender's not a real thing. Um, I'll just lay out one. Yodi and I were talking about this a few, few weeks ago. The American economy, the way we run our economy, the way we have jobs, the way jobs work, was built on the model of a man going off to work, supported by a woman in the home taking care of kids and kind of managing the household. That's, that's how we built the 40-hour work week and all the other features of the American economy. And then, mid-20th century, we said, we're just going to add women into that with no changes, no accommodations. Just stick women in, it'll be fine. That was a gender-blind decision, and it has had devastating consequences. Men and women are different. They have different needs in the workplace. And we know that now, we're starting to realize that now. In order to make true justice work, Christians, in order to be ready for good works, which I think Christians should do, we need to recognize what the genders need in the workplace, what the genders need in our society, what really will make for health and strength. And I think Christians need to be a part of that process. Paul says this. Men aren't independent of women. Women aren't independent of, of men. Genesis 2 says women was made from half of man or the side of man or the rib of man. But now every man that's ever walked on the earth was born of a woman. They all depend on each other, and he ends with this point, everything comes from God. Brothers and sisters, these social issues and these scriptural controversies, they're going to be with us a long time. This truth is always going to be true. Everything comes from God. You and me? We're going to live our lives under God. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your creation goodness. We want to be humble as we try to discern what's right and what's good and what we should be doing right here, right now. God, we want to be humble and we want to seek your will as we try to understand how to live in our families how to live in our churches, how to live in our society, how to make the world a more just and fair place, and how to make a world where people are given a chance to serve you and to be what you made each person to be. God, help us and lead us into that wisdom. 
These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's gracious invitation in Jesus Christ, if you need the blessing of salvation in Christ, if you need prayers of this earnest congregation to pray on your behalf, or you need something else, we invite you to come forward. Tell us your need as we stand and are led in song.